Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Caroline Criado-Perez and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to this special RSA online event with the wonderful Tim Harford, who as his many loyal listeners and readers watching along today will know is an award-winning author, a senior columnist at the Financial Times and the host of both the Cautionary Tales podcast and of course, more or less on BBC Radio 4. So Tim joins me today to talk about his brilliant new book, How to Make the World Add Up, which is hot off the press. In fact, I think as this conversation airs, it's official publication day. So many congratulations, Tim. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it really is a terrific read and just the kind of book we need right now. Riding to the rescue at a time when I think a lot of us are feeling pretty overwhelmed and daunted by the sheer scale of data that swirls around us on a daily basis. It's full of compelling stories and practical guidance that can help us look at the stats with a clearer and more confident eye. So Tim, I think it's fair to say we've spent, um, both of us, quite a lot of time looking at the darker side of data. Um, people may know that in my work on the gender data gap, I've been interested in a sort of what I call a female-shaped absence in much of our publicly recorded and published data and the ways that that came about. Um, so a kind of not basically unthinking, not thinking, but also through willful blindness and bias. But your book, while cautionary, is also a celebration of the power of statistics as a force for good in the world. Um, you show us that when they're used well, they're essential to helping us see and fight injustice. And of course, that they can be a lot of fun. So I wanted to kick off our conversation today by exploring how we go about striking that balance. So approaching statistical claims with a healthy pinch of skepticism, but also without falling prey to cynicism. And you opened the book in 1954, um, which saw the publication of what was to become an influential popular book on statistics. Who knew that one of those could exist? As well as a landmark health study. So the story you tell gets right to the heart of this point about how stats can be used for good, but also for ill. So can you tell us about those two pieces of work and what they reveal about how numbers can swindle or save lives? Uh, absolutely. The, the best story in the book, though, Caroline, by the way, is uh, the time I met Caroline Criado Perez. <laughs> that's that's I the real... I really like that bit. <laughs> that's, that's the page turner. Um, so, yeah, look, well, look the, the thing that, that your book, which I loved, and my book, which I hope some other people will love. The thing that I love. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I genuinely they... did, by the way, listeners, watchers, whatever. I'm not just saying that. It is really, it is really great. Um, oh. And it made me think a lot. Thank you. Thank you. But the, the two books have got something in common, which is they both take statistics seriously. They both say that this stuff matters. It's not, um, it's not some kind of game uh, where statistics are just a vector for uh, winning political arguments. I mean, of course, they can be used to try to win political arguments, but they, they actually matter. They shape our understanding of the world. Uh, and I, I've often tried to focus on the positives of that. And Invisible Women focuses on, on how much damage can be done if the data that shape our world uh, have these massive gaps in them. But those visions of, of statistics that we've got are very different to what Daryl Huff was thinking in 1954 when he published how to Lie with Statistics, which is a brilliant little book. I mean, it's, I read it as a teenager, I loved it. Um, it's witty, it's got loads of great examples, it's really uh, well written. Um, but fundamentally, it is from cover to cover, a warning about misinformation. It presents statistics as a kind of trick. And it's like, I'm gonna reveal to you how the stage magician 
pulls the rabbit out of the hat, you know, and that's kind of fun to reveal that. But obviously nobody would take it seriously. Nobody would actually think that you could ever do real magic. Um, and that's really corrosive because it turns out you can do real magic with statistics. You can see things that you can't see in any other way. And, and in 1954, the same year How to Lie with Statistics was published, uh, Richard Doll and Austin Bradford Hill, two epidemiologists, published some of the, the, the first uh, work really compellingly showing that there's a statistical li link between smoking cigarettes and lung cancer, which is not something that was at all clear at the time. So you've got these two visions of statistics. One is as a way of seeing the invisible and of understanding the world so that we can change it for the better. And the other one is as a kind of joke or a trick. Uh, and that's why I get worried when people compliment more or less, oh, I like compliments, but when people compliment more or less as a program that oh, debunks all those phony statistics. So I feel, well, if, if that's all we're doing or if that's what people think we're doing, then we're missing something. It's, it's important to see what's a lie, but it's really important to see what's true as well. Mm. And, and, and as you know, Caroline, the, the story of Daryl Huff has a really dark twist to it. Yeah. In the, in the end. I'm going to give it away. That's going to ruin your introduction. Okay, no, you're right. Okay, no. <laughs> it's got a really dark twist. It's amazing. It Buy the book. It, it, yeah, you really should. I, that was one of the most enjoyable bits of the book was getting to the end of the introduction and going, no way he didn't. Um, Anyway, so um, sticking with Huff and the Hildol study um, for a second, uh, because you actually cited them again in a recent piece uh, for the FT, which looks in detail at COVID and the numbers. And of course, we've kind of become obsessed with numbers in recent months. You know, we've been talking about them and things like R rate in a way that we, you know, we didn't even know what an R rate was. Yeah. No one had ever heard of it. So um, nerd alert, it's, it's not a rate. It's the oh, R number. It's not a oh, rate. Sorry. Jim, I actually it's, had R number in my notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just there'll, there'll be emails if I, if I let that one. Um, I, what I found, just on it, you, you'll like this, Caroline, but I mm. found that when my... Um, female producer, Kate Lamble, makes a mistake. Mm. I get emails saying, why did you let her make that mistake? So I just, I just am afraid I have to take responsibility for your error there. <laughs> so the R number. Um, so I'd like to, to get some info from you, you know, about how you think that we've been handling the COVID numbers other than things like saying R rate instead of R numbers. Um, so how have government comms been doing? Um, how is government policy being informed by the data? And um, what are the gaps in the data? I have my own opinions on where some of the gaps are. Um, but perhaps most importantly, from a personal perspective, uh, my boyfriend is planning on taking the tube tonight to play seven-a-side football. It is outdoors, but you know, still a lot of sweaty men running around breathing on each other. Um, and what I'd really like to know from you is whether or not I can ban him from doing that. So the tube and the football. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot packed into that. Should we do the, before we do the kind of how has the, the coronavirus pandemic gone and how's data been handled, um, let's, let's do the boyfriend thing because this okay. is really, I mean, one Very of the things I'm, I'm trying to get people to understand is that this is, this is news everybody can use. It's actually mm. not that difficult to evaluate the risks. So um, the latest data from the Office for National Statistics, which published every uh, Friday, I remember rightly, they reckoned there were about um, nearly 60 million, uh, 60 infections per million people per day. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it depends what you're doing, 
But let's just say that um, getting on the tube and then doing some outdoor activity is kind of average risk. It's not a crazy thing to do. It's not a particularly safe thing to do. So let's just say it's average risk. So I so think we can say that you're... Him. Yeah, well, <laughs> when you're saying your, your boyfriend then has a 60 in a million chance of getting COVID if he does this, I, I think. Uh, very rough. I mean, this is super rough, but it gives you a ballpark. So then the question is, well, what's the, what's the danger that it, that it kills him? And um, I don't know, if he's, if he's 80, then... Um, he's not 80. He's not 80. Okay, <laughs> higher or lower? No. <laughs> he's... God, I'm actually not sure how old he is. 33? Okay. We, we, we don't need to get into the details. I, I, think it's, I think it's probably fine. So I did this calculation for a friend of mine who's uh -huh. in his early 60s. Right. And I reckoned it was about a one in two million chance that he would get a fatal case of COVID mm. if he went outside for a day, which is right. not nothing. It's like um, riding a motorbike or skiing mm. or horse riding. It's not totally risk-free. And what's, um, what, what com comparably, 60 in a million, what would, what would be a comparable activity for that? Well, 60 in a million is the chance of getting it. Yeah. So then, so, um, so oh God, 60 in a million. Well, I mean, if everybody in the country did that, then that would be um, 60 times 60, it would be about three and a half thousand people mm -hmm. every day right. experiencing that. So it's like, it wouldn't be unheard of, right. um, but, but it wouldn't be, it's not nearly kind of rare enough to be reported in the newspapers. Yeah. So I think, I think your boyfriend is taking a completely manageable risk. Ah, but, um, but you do have to, you, you of course have to emphasize, he's got to wash hands, he's got to wear a mask on the tube, yeah. all of these things, because really, for most of us, the risk is not a personal risk. The risk is that we contribute mm -hmm. to spreading the epidemic and, and particularly the elderly people are still at risk. So yeah. that's the eyes on the prize. It's not about personal risk. It's about the, the risk of spreading. Um, yeah. You had another question, I'm sure. It was about how- I, how I had some other questions. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it was more really about the government. I've actually been pretty irritated with, with government communications in terms of risk because it doesn't feel like they've been playing fair with us. Um, and yeah, I'd just be interested to hear your take as the expert on this kind of thing. What do you think, like, what would you be your scorecard for the government in terms of how they've been handling the numbers and how they've been communicating the risks to us? Um, I think they've, they've not been great. Um, I think we need to be clear what we mean by the government. I think the Office for National Statistics have been, they've really stepped up. So mm -hmm. they're doing this um, weekly survey of the population it's like a proper representative sample and that's mm. how you know how much covid is out there at a time when the testing system is you know really expanded and then it's stuttering again and you don't know where the tests are being done you don't know whether we're getting better at finding cases so you can't really learn that much from looking at these daily case counts the ons doing a great job mm -hmm. um, but the i mean those press conferences they're not great i have some sympathy because it's a, it's a uh, and I'm not inclined to be sympathetic to, to governments in general, or this government in particular, but it's, it's hard. The mm. moment you, you get out there with your two scientific advisors on either side of you and start having daily press conferences, um, because this is serious and people need to take it seriously, I sympathise why they did that. But the moment you've done that, you sort of committed yourself to a daily update of all the data. Mm. And suddenly everyone's, you know, well, how many people died today? Well, the answer is we don't know and we're not going to be able to know because there's always a delay in reporting deaths. Well, how many cases were found today? Well, we don't really know that either, not in a representative way. 
So at that point, it, it starts to get very confusing. And, and of course, the spin doctors step in mm. and they're very keen to, to get the political messaging right. Mm. So um, the ONS, heroes, they've done a great job. Um, the government, not great. It could have been worse, but it's not great. And, it, and in I, the, I'm interested in what, what emissions you think they've, they've made. I mean, the, the, well, the gender breakdown I, is a big one. I am going to come on to that, but I, I just want to ask, just because this is something that I know you're interested in, it's something you talk about in the book. What damage do you think the government is doing to the reputation of statistics? Um, because that's something that's really worrying, and it is something that you get into in a, quite a lot of depth in your book about uh, statistics being used for politics and you know how this can then damage our belief in statistics and then damage the funding of statistics which obviously you're making a great case for as incredibly important so how worried you are you about the damage if you think there is any damage no. in terms of how the government has um, well okay obviously not the office for national statistics but you know the cabinet boris johnson gavin williamson yeah. matt hancock how they've been um, handling the statistics and, and um, communicating about them? I, I am worried. I mean, I'm particularly frustrated with the way um, Matt Hancock has been uh, reporting testing data. They set these, these very ambitious targets and basically, um, I mean, I, basically they lied about whether they'd hit them. I mm. mean, that's a, that's a harsh way to put it, but they used a definition of what constitutes a test that I think no sensible person would recognize as a reasonable definition. And mm. they were told repeatedly that this was a misleading definition and they kept using it. So mm. I think that you've got to say that's deliberate deception. Mm. Um, and, then, and then people start to get very cynical about yeah. what's going on. Um, so it's worrying. It's interesting that Dominic Cummings seems to be really into the data. He's so, mm. he's, oh, we need more geeks in government. We need more statistics in government. Um, but he's done a lot to, spread cynicism about statistics. Mm. It, me, it's, it's a bit like, you know, he wants it both ways. He wants like a swimming pool where, where you've got like the, the end that he swims in and then you've got the end that people piss in, right? It doesn't work like that. You know, once people are pissing in the swimming pool, yeah. that's what we all that's have a, to swim that's in. That's a really um, lovely so, metaphor yeah. that <laughs> you come for there. Um, well, what do you think should be done. I mean, can the average person do anything about this, about this spreading cynicism about statistics? Well, we can. I mean, clearly some of it's institutional. Some of it's about the way the media work, about the way uh, official organizations work, the Office of National Statistics, about the way politicians behave. You know, there's an institutional framework here that we need to work to improve. Um, but as individuals, we can do a lot. So um, I, I have these 10 rules of thumb in the book, and they are mostly not that complicated. So the very first one is just to calm down and notice your emotional reaction to any claim. So often, especially on social media, because that's the way it works, we see something that makes us laugh or makes us angry, mm -hmm. makes us think, oh, I can't, that can't possibly be right, that must be fake news, or this mm -hmm. proves I was right all along. And it's, I mean, that's because we're human. That's how it works. That's, and that's okay. And I'm not saying we should suppress our emotions, but I do think you, we need to notice them before mm. we immediately mash down on the retweet button or the like button. Just mm. notice how it makes you feel. Mm. Because if we've learned anything from the last few years, our emotions really guide what we believe. And I can give you all the technical advice in the world, mm. and it's not going to change your mind on anything unless you also take on board the emotional advice and the, mm. the warnings against wishful thinking. 
Mm. That's one thing we can do. And, and the other basic uh, piece of advice I would give is just to try to put things into context. So if someone's making a claim, ask yourself, well, let's say it's an amount of money. Matt Hancock said we were going to save 100 million if all the fatties lost weight. Um, he didn't phrase it like that, but that's basically what he said. Um, we'd save 100 million over five years for the NHS. Well, okay, this is not a hard piece of maths. There were about 70 million people in the country. So that's a bit more than a pound per person. And it's over five years. So it's pennies. Mm. 30p a person is what we'd say for the NHS if all of these overweight people lost some weight. It, that's not, I mean, my, my nine-year-old son could do that kind of mathematics. You don't even need a calculator. You mm -hmm. just need to know in your head roughly how many people there are in the country. Mm -hmm. So to put something in context, to, realize, to ask, is it big? Is it small? Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it more or less than it is over in France or in Germany? Mm -hmm. These things, they're not that hard and anybody can do them. And they really help us think more clearly. Well, since you've brought up how people are doing things in France or Germany, um, I, I wanted to speak a little bit more internationally. I'm actually jumping a question ahead now because my next question was going to be a sec about sex disaggregated data, but we'll come back to that, I promise. Oh, it's, um, it's improv. We're like a, a jazz team. It really is. <laughs> um, so it's just, it reminded me of this more or less episode that you did about something very dodgy sounding that Spain was doing with its death um, rate. And I wondered if you could perhaps talk a little bit about that for the people who don't religiously listen to more or less. Um, but I'd also be, I, I know, I know, <laughs> uh, but I'd also be really interested to know if you think there are any countries that are doing particularly well um, that perhaps we should seek to emulate when it comes to how they're collecting and publishing their data. Well, maybe everyone's making a mess of it. Yeah, uh, South Korea are not making a mess of it. Last time I looked, they, they seem to be doing well. Um, so yeah, Spain um, basically, if I remember rightly, and it is a few weeks ago, they said, oh, we're only going to report deaths if they are reported on the date the death occurred, yeah. which is often not the case. There's often a delay for, in many countries. Uh, and, and therefore, they've just stopped counting deaths effectively. And, mm. and so the FT, for example, the Financial Times has a coronavirus tracker. We just had to stop publishing data on Spain. We just don't know how many people are dying in Spain. We've got some data from regional agencies that show us clearly some people are dying. This was mm -hmm. before the second wave. Mm -hmm. There weren't that many people, but people were dying. And the Spanish government was like, well, sorry, it didn't fit our little narrow definition of, of what it has to, to, to get the tick box to get reported. So mm -hmm. they just reported no deaths. Um, so, the, so the British government is by no means the only uh, yeah. government to, to be a bit cheeky about this. Um, there, there was a really good piece in Nature uh, about three or four weeks ago written by Amy Maxman. Uh, who said that she particularly looked at the situation in the US and she said this is a, a crisis, a data crisis. Mm. Uh, we don't have the, the processing of cases, we don't have the processing of deaths to allow the epidemiologists to figure out what's going on. Um, the, uh, there's all kinds, seems to be all kinds of political interference with how deaths are funneled to the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, or whether they should be funded up, upstream to the um, HHS, HH, S, which is the department that kind of owns the CDC and it's, the whole thing's just become incredibly political and really messy and really dysfunctional both in terms of public trust and in terms of just figuring out what's going on. Um, I think the UK is doing a lot better than that but not mm. brilliantly. Really interesting to look at something like South Korea mm. where citizens have really good data about where the cases are being found 
the, mm-hmm. maybe the, I mean, some, some privacy concerns, but you, the last time I checked with South Korea, you could fire up your um, smartphone and say, well, I'm planning to walk to the library today. And mm-hmm. they would say, well, you can walk past the Starbucks, um, but the star- there was a case identified in Starbucks yesterday. So maybe you'd rather take this other route where you don't pass any identified cases. I mean, this is just an enormous, I'm maybe slightly out of date, but there was an enormous amount of information yeah. available. Yeah. The fewer cases you have, there's a virtuous spiral. The fewer cases you have, the easier it is to give really good data on what's going on. And as we're seeing in the UK at the moment, as the caseload builds up, the system starts getting overwhelmed and very easy to just lose track of what's going on. Yeah. So let's get to that sex disaggregated data now, because that is something that it just baffles me how few countries are systematically collecting and publishing data on positive tests and deaths. And in fact, I don't think any country um, is publishing sex disaggregated data on who is actually getting tested, which surely is required to make sense of the other two data points. Um, And I'd just be interested in your take on what's stopping us from doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you're you're the expert, but uh, (laughs) yeah, why why aren't we doing that? Um, Particularly since, I mean, there are two, two obvious points and you're probably, I hope you'll add a couple of less obvious points, but one obvious point is this virus kills more men than women. It's more dangerous to men than women. It's really hard to be sure about how much that's true if you're not publishing sex disaggregated data. And secondly, the economic impact um, of all this homeworking uh, and the the, uh, laying off of people or the furloughing of people in um, casual work and service work, that's got to be having a disproportionate effect on men and women. And I haven't seen uh, very good data on that either. Mm. So, you know, we need to we need to do a lot better. The the one defence I would make of the of the bean counters uh, is that we didn't have any data at all on this in January, mm. none, and we built this, this enormous infrastructure to try to understand what's going on. And in a way, what we're looking at is a kind of miracle of data collection. But I want to I want to praise that and admire it and encourage people not to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time say, surely we, would, we should be able to provide more resolution in terms of sex disaggregation, in terms of geography, in terms of all kinds of things. Yeah. Well, what's, your, what's your thinking on, on why people haven't done this other than, you know, they usually don't? I mean, that's, I mean, you're, you're the bean counter. So I thought you would tell me, because I, from my perspective, I just don't get it at all. It seems to me that if you are collecting data, it's not that difficult to mark down, is this person a man or a woman? You know, is this person 80 or 50? You know, it it, it just doesn't seem that complicated to me. And and also it seems like a no brainer because you can't make sense of the data properly unless you have this contextual information, you know, as you were saying, so men are more likely to die. And we knew from very early on that more men were dying. But until we were getting sex disaggregated positive test data alongside the death data, it w- was impossible to know, are more men dying because they're more likely to get it? Or are more men dying because they're more likely to die from it? Absolutely. So you needed both of them. But then on top of that, I think you also need to know who is getting tested, not just who is getting a positive test, because it could still be, well, maybe more men are getting tested. You know, so there's all this information that unless we have it, we can't possibly formulate a coherent policy towards addressing whatever the issue is. And similarly, you know, as you say, for the economic issues, there was this really interesting two studies that I read um, 
one which found that productivity had increased since working from home, which I was a bit skeptical of. And then the other one, which sex disaggregated its data, it, sorry, which sex disaggregated its data, which found that yes, productivity had increased for men, <laughs> but had gone down for women. Yeah. So, you know, you can get completely the wrong um, idea of what's going on and therefore will direct your resources incorrectly if you don't sex disaggregate your data. Um, yesterday, a really important paper on social deprivation came out, which I'm sure you saw a report from the, I can't remember who it was for, the Social Commission. Anyway, yeah. whatever. Paper came out, a report came out um, about um, social deprivation. And it was a really important report, except it was purely done on men because we hadn't collected the data on women, which was just staggering to me. Um, so it doesn't really tell you what you need to know because you know women are 50 percent of the population and we do know that women are more likely to be living in poverty than men and so why on earth for something that is going to affect women in a different way to men we know this because of women's working patterns um, we know about the gender pay gap you know why you wouldn't have collected data on women for that anyway yeah. no i'm i'm i agree and it's it's <laughs> like i mean it can't be like they're running out of cells on the spreadsheet right but there's right. a story i tell in in the book about um, Graciela Bavacqua, who's this amazing statistician in, in Argentina. And she was ordered to just, um, when she was reporting inflation, to just remove all the, all the stuff behind the decimal point. It's like, we've run out of decimal points. You can't, yeah. you can't. so just reminded me of that. But you're, no, you're right. And there is a chapter in the book, um, which, I mean, it's not gonna come as any su surprise to anyone who's read Invisible Women, which hopefully is everybody, seems to be everybody. Um, <laughs> talks about who's missing and, and mm. so there are a lot of ideas there from invisible women um but also uh, you know other areas where there are people who or people or data points for, for whatever reason are just not being gathered because there's some mm. systematic bias in the way that we're gathering the data but what's really struck because i tell i've got all these stories in the book about or this really interesting research study or this piece of research or and after reading Invisible Women, I, I thought, oh, I've got to go back and check. Did they sex disaggregate the data? Was this just done on a bunch of male college students? Mm. And it's really surprising how hard it is to find out. I had to, actually really? had to email these, um, these professors who are now in their late 70s about some research they'd done in about 1969 to say, mm. was it, was, was it um, male and female students or, or just, mm. just men? And they said, oh, no, it was, it was male and female, but they didn't, they didn't report that at the time. Yeah, but it's just, it is really frustrating. Like if I could make one piece of regulation that I feel should be quite easy to get past or have something that all journals agree to sign up to, it would be that you have to say, you know, what was the sex mix of your, um, of your subjects, you know, yeah. because it is so difficult to find that information. I was looking at, um, so there was a Washington Post article that came out recently looking at various studies on immunity to COVID. Yeah. Um, and the article was written in a totally gender neutral way, didn't mention sex at all. Um, and I went and looked at the papers that it referred to. And several of them, there was just no details at all um, on the sex of the participants. Several of them uh, were male dominated. Um, and I think none of them provided the sex disaggregated data, you know, even the ones that had included women. Actually, there was yeah. a study that came out the other day. Sorry, I'm going on a rant now. I'll probably have to cut all this out. Um, where um, it was looking at um, 
uh, car sickness, which is yeah. much more prevalent in women, something I suffer from really badly. And they actually went to the effort of including women and found a way to make sure that women drop out, because that didn't drop out, because that's one of the issues with car sickness studies or motion sickness studies, that women tend to drop out because they get such bad motion sickness. Because they, they get sick, yeah, okay. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, they um, didn't disaggregate their data. <laughs> Why? Why would you not so disaggregate strange. your data? It's so strange. And, and, with, and with COVID, we, you know, we know that it's about uh, roughly twice as dangerous to men as, as to women. It does seem very weird to publish a whole study on immunity right. to COVID that doesn't, yeah. just doesn't, doesn't mention it. And we know, we've known for a very long time, that there are immune sex differences. We, we don't know exactly why, what the function behind it is, because, no, we haven't studied the female immune system, but we have known that there's this difference. And, yeah, as you say, it's staggering in the context of a disease where we know there are these big sex, sex differences, that we, don't, we aren't sex segregating the data. I just... Yeah. You explain why, Tim. Explain <laughs> why. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll let you know once I've figured it out. Uh, <laughs> but let me, let me just loop back to to what we were saying right at the beginning that the, that our two books have in common: um, Invisible Women and How to Make the World Add Up, which is just this recognition that this stuff matters. Mm. And we there's a lot of um, a lot of detail about the world that we don't we can't really perceive in any other way than using statistics mm. because because stuff is too small or stuff, stuff is too big. There are nearly 8 billion people on the world um, or it's too long-term um, long or it's, um, it's too subtle. I mean, you know, there's 67 million people in the country, trillions of dollars change hands every day. There's so much stuff that you, anecdotal evidence is never going to tell you anything about it. Statistics mm -hmm. are the only way we have to see what's happening. And what the books have in common is a plea to take it seriously that the, the integrity of the statistics and the completeness of the statistics that we gather mm. are, you know, are the completeness of our picture of the world. Um, they're not just uh, a way for liars to lie. Uh, mm. and, and understanding statistics means so much more than just um, spotting when you're being lied to or debunking fake news. It's, mm. the, the stakes are much higher than that. Mm. Um, well, I mean, on that note, actually, um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently and I was thinking a lot when I was reading your book is you know you're providing us with all these great tools to understand statistics and sort of being able to recognize when statistics are not necessarily being used honestly and unfortunately we need those tools because we can't always trust people to use statistics honestly um, and it just occurs to me why are we not teaching this in school you know, obviously some people learn it in school, but you have to choose to take it. You know, and I remember having to do long division by hand and I sort of feel like it would have been a much more useful life skill to have been taught statistics. Yeah. Um, and I just wondered, well, first of all, how early in school do you think we should be teaching statistics? Um, and are you going to start a campaign to get it put on the primary school curriculum? So I have been thinking about this a lot and talking to... I and mean, there, there were grown-ups who were thinking about this hard. And I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, the problem with what teachers are doing in schools is this, and they should be doing this. I mean, mm. it's very easy to say. And everything you say, oh, this should be taught in schools, um, something else has to get bumped. So, mm -hmm. um, well, long division, we, bump it. I don't okay, need it. Okay, fine. It is, <laughs> I have to say, I haven't done much long division since I left school. Uh, so <laughs> you may have a point. But, but I think that... Um, where I see the real opportunity as being, although it's not, hard, it's not easy to do, but where I see the real opportunity as being 
is in integrating this sort of statistical thinking into other subjects. Mm. Statistics itself, um, as part of advanced mathematics, uh, is a, I mean, it's, it's really gnarling, it's really complicated, um, mm -hmm. how they derive the pro properties of certain distributions and so on. Um, it's deep maths. Uh, but the ideas that I'm talking about in how to make the world add up, about you know, um, putting a claim into context, trying to understand what a claim really means, um, thinking critically, being curious and open-minded, asking who's missing from the data. Um, these aren't super complicated. A lot of this stuff you could be doing at the age of eight or nine, and you mm. could easily integrate it. Maybe not easily, but you certainly could integrate it into geography, economics, uh, political science, physics, biology, psychology. And so much of the, the other subjects that we study we could have that study, I think, sharpened and illuminated by a little bit of statistical thinking. Mm. One, of the, one of the heroes of the book is Florence Nightingale, who's mm -hmm. famous for her nursing, of course, but in Geekland is famous for being a, a statistical pioneer and a, and a data visualization pioneer. And um, just one little detail about uh, Nightingale that I love is that when she was nine years old, she was out in the garden um, categorizing all the different kinds of plants in the garden and doing these uh, these beautiful little graphics and, and mm. tables uh, and it's just a sense of you know even a kid can do this if mm. there's if there's interest if we're curious uh, if we want to if we find it interesting we can go quite deep oh that's such a beautiful setup for the final question but it means that I definitely can't slide in one more question which i wanted to ask you which is about algorithms but i think we're not going to have time so uh, no, 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 let's do algorithms and then we do algorithms, we'll do algorithms okay. really quickly okay oh it's quite a big question it's okay. just it's something i'm i'm really concerned about um is the introduction of algorithms into decision making in so many parts of our lives and that the data we have just isn't adequate um and the tech world just doesn't seem to have caught on enough to the fact that the data isn't adequate and therefore they need to mitigate for it and they need to be transparent in how they're mitigating for it if in fact they are um, and i suppose the question i have because i really struggle to understand how this keeps happening you know we keep hearing stories of algorithms just making a big mess you know amazon's algorithm only hiring men um, yep medical algorithms that are amplifying the gender data biases we have in in medicine policing algorithms which are much more likely to send black people in america to jail right there are all these serious problems the algorithms are um amplifying and i suppose the question is why is why does this keep happening um how do we stop it and um as in stop it, you know, get the tech world to catch on. Um, and then also what exactly do we have to do to sort of avoid slipping into an algorithm induced dystopia? Yeah. So I mean, why does it keep happening? You've got <laughs> less than one minute, Tim. Okay. It, we, it keeps happening because a lot of people think algorithms are kind of magic. Some people think they're black magic. Some people think they're uh, fairy godmother magic, but mm. they're, they're not. They're, they're just a, a tool and they can be used well or badly. The, the A-level algo shambles, I think, was particularly instructive earlier this summer, where somebody managed to convince um, Gavin Williamson and everyone else in charge of the Department of Education that an algorithm was going to give kids the, the grades they were going to get if they had sat the exam, although they weren't sitting the exam. If you yeah. just put it like that for a moment, you go, oh, I don't think that, that's not gonna happen though, is it? That's not actually possible. And if they'd engaged with that fact in March, we cancelled the exams 
and an, an algorithm can't replace the lost information from those exams, then we'd have been in a much better place than having to make that decision in, in August. Um, what can we do about it? Uh, the metaphor I use in the book is to think about the, the switch from alchemy to science. Mm. Alchemy is all about private information. It's all about people working away and not revealing their secrets because they hope that their secrets are going to produce gold. And obviously mm. gold isn't worth anything if everyone knows how to do it. Mm. And th there was no progress made at all, uh, not just because you can't turn lead into gold, but because no one was sharing any information. It's probably quite a lot, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, well, <laughs> you, would still, you would still have expected all kinds of information to emerge from these experiments because mm. they, were, they, were, they were brilliant people like Isaac Newton. Mm. They were using the scientific method, in other words, experiments, mm. but they weren't sharing and building on each other's uh, data. Mm. So I think that's a really instructive lesson for thinking about algorithms. At the moment, so much of what algorithms do is secret. It's secret because of commercial motives, um, mm. often you know, commercially protected. Mm. And, we, and these algorithms can do a lot of good, but unless we're able to uh, assess them, to get the experts in, to see them uh, prove their effectiveness in a proper fair test, for example, a randomized trial, unless there's more, not just transparency, but just more open discussion and evaluation of these algorithms, then it's just going to be like al alchemy all over again, and it's going to do a lot of damage. But as you say, you know, there's this commercial motive. So how do we get around that? I mean, is it do we need regulation? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and, and you're, you're interviewing a sort of laissez-faire ec economist who's, who's never very persuaded of the, the need for regulation. But here, yes, definitely. Right. We need to be less gullible. And yes, we need proper standards. And that's probably going to come from regulators. Okay, so I'm going to ask the final question, which you set up so brilliantly at the end of your last answer, um, which is to um, reveal your final golden rule. So you have 10 rules for thinking differently about numbers, and we've spoken about a few of them. Um, but tell us what the final golden rule is. The golden rule is to be curious. And I know that, that seems very simple, but I think there's quite a lot to it. Very often in the book, I'm all I'm asking people to do is to stop and think, to maybe go another click, another quick search uh, on the internet, um, try to make a comparison, ask what's going on behind the numbers. Like, well, did they disag disaggregate men and women? Um, mm. Or do I understand what this number is even referring to? If we've, if we've surveyed a lot of um, teenage girls and they've said that they've engaged in self-harming behavior, do we actually know what they meant when they said that they'd engaged in self-harming behavior? Or do we just have our own idea about what that means? Uh, mm. So it's, it's all about showing more curiosity and going a little bit deeper. And if you haven't got time for that, which of course, who has time to do it for every claim we see, at least ask, well, has the source that I'm looking at, has the journalist, for example, done that work? Is mm. there some sign of uh, of context, of clarity, you know, studies show something. Do we mm. know what the, what the people who conducted the study actually did? Uh, I don't think curiosity is too much to ask. I also think it's a, it's a kind of magic because one of the real banes of modern life is political polarization. This idea mm. that everything is about them and us and we're always right about everything and they're always wrong about everything. And mm. I'm not interested in what the experts say and I'm not interested in the evidence because I just want to be I want my team to win. Mm. It's very, very hard to break that down. But there is some evidence that a curious frame of mind and an interest in uh, scientific ideas, a curiosity about scientific ideas, does help 
to, to, um, to erode that very, very corrosive mindset. Because even when you see evidence that you don't want to accept because it contradicts your views, if you're curious, you still go, oh, that's interesting. I wonder, I don't think that's right, but I wonder how they came to that conclusion. Mm. I'm, I've been trying to encourage my fellow nerd communicators to think about curiosity. It's not just mm. about speak slowly, speak clearly, don't use jargon. That's all fine. The really great scientific communicators, people like Hannah Fry, David Attenborough, they do much more than be clear. They awaken this sort of sense of wonder of uh, amazing truths out there to be discovered if you're only willing to devote a little bit of time and attention. And that's what I think we all need to do. And as, as Orson Welles said, if people can understand anything if they're interested, that's the challenge, to get them interested. And that's what I'm trying to do. Um, well, that is an amazing point to wrap up on. Um, I'm very sad that there are lots of questions I didn't get to ask. Um, I guess I'm going, I can force you to answer them at a later date. Um, <laughs> if you're watching online now, it's time to switch over to Twitter, where Tim will be standing by to take your questions on the hashtag RSA numbers. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's publication day woo, for yeah. how to make the world add up. So head out to your local bookshop or follow the links on the R. There it is on the RSA event with, hashtag. With blurb from Caroline yeah, Perez. Top endorsement from a top feminist. Um, follow the links on the RSA event hashtag to get yourself a copy. Uh, it really is an essential and hugely enjoyable read. And we really have barely scratched the surface um, in this discussion. Uh, so finally, a big thank you again to Tim Harford, and thank you again, all of you, for watching. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.